Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Saca, ojo que lo va a bajar Rice, gol. Bueno, 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 bueno. Gol, 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 gol del Arsenal. Gol de Declan Rice. Locura en el Emirates porque en el 96 de partido, bueno, la que se está montando, marca Declan Rice el 2 a 1. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning, Andrew. How you doing? I'm good. Six of the best dished out to West Ham yesterday. Take that! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, six of the best. I actually didn't realise that's what six of the best was referring to. Um, What did you think it was? I don't know, just six of the best goals or I don't know, something nicer than strikes. But uh, nevertheless, that is what we delivered yesterday. Yeah, for those, I mean, it's corporal punishment, basically, isn't Mm. it? You are going to get six of the best, said the teacher with his cane and his cape and his weird little hat like they used to have. And then they give you six lashes with a cane or a strap. That's what we had. And we had actually both. When I was uh, when I was growing up in school, we had a big wow. leather strap and a cane, um, so we were we were very lucky, privileged, you know, to have a bit of variety in in terms of how we were beaten, mm. uh, a bit like West Ham. Yeah, well, the strap was on the other hand this time, Andrew. <laughs> it was your turn to dish out the corporal punishment to West Ham United, and much deserved after two defeats to West Ham this season. You know, there was. 
I think there was a sense of not quite revenge in the air, but, but you know, we, we owed them one after being beaten in the EFL Cup, which, you know, I guess most people can can take or leave, compartmentalize in their own way. But but certainly the the, the defeat in December against West Ham at home was, was quite painful. It, it, it delivered quite a, a lot of introspection and discussion and, you know, it's tied in with that period of the season where, we you know, we didn't have a lot of football going on. So there was a lot of um, pouring over that particular defeat. Um, and I think Arsenal... Arsenal answered the uh, the questions fairly emphatically yesterday. Yeah, I think there was obviously those two defeats to West Ham this season. There was this game in the league last season where we were 2-0 up after 10 minutes and yet managed to drop points at yeah. a critical point in the title race. There was the whole sort of Declan Rice thing of you know him having not beaten West Ham since joining Arsenal, having lost, in fact, in two separate games. And I suppose just that question of a potential hangover from mm. the Liverpool game, you know, could we follow up uh, that result with another win? Could we, Andrew, justify those celebrations? Um, <laughs> and, and you know, we did. We certainly did. Were you cognizant of a, a measure of anxiety before the game? Because, you know, we played very well against Liverpool and then you're looking at West Ham and you're thinking, well, we've lost a couple of times. Is it a potential banana skin? Are we capable of doing this? You know, can we go there and and, and sort of build on what we did last week? And then the team came out and the lineup, uh, lineup was announced and there was no Emile Smith-Rowe. There was no Takahiro Tomiyasu on top of... Thomas Partey, Jurian Timber, Fabio Vieira, Gabriel Jesus was not in the squad. Uh, who else am I missing? There's somebody else. Uh, I mean, Jorginho had a foot problem as well, yeah. I think, ongoing. I think we'd miss, we missed seven in total. There's somebody I'm, I'm not thinking of. Um, but, you know, uh, Zinchenko, of course, was, was ah, not yeah. available as well. So you, you've seven first team players out. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I certainly got some messages from, from friends going, mm, that bench, I'm not sure that's, uh, that's given me a great deal of comfort. If this is a game where, you know, it's not going your way, you have to turn to the bench to change things. You can understand why there was a measure of anxiety or, or maybe a little bit of um, doubt as to whether or not that might happen. So there really was an onus on that first 11 to, to get the job done. I think so, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know about broadly if there was anxiety, but I know I felt a little bit of anxiety. I mean, how could you not really, given the way those West Ham games have gone this season? Um, and, you know, a, a few important personnel missing, nobody really coming back to, you know, ease off the injury situation. So, yeah, I think there was definitely a, a bit of concern there. Um, I mean, what what did you make of the team that Mikel Arteta actually picked? Were you surprised about any aspect of it? Not really in terms of, you know, when you take into account who was available and who wasn't available. Mm. Like with no Tommy Asu or no Zinchenko, it meant keep your left back. Up front, I mean, it was nominally... I mean, who was up front? Was it Havertz? Was it Trossard? It was kind of hard to tell at times. But yeah. you can understand, you know, in a game like this where West Ham are probably going to sit deep in a in a low block, um, which I think is being very kind to them, you know, um, 
just from the point of view that it's, you know, you can say you're playing a low block, but you're also playing in a very, very unambitious way might be another way of looking at it, right? But if, Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, um, if that's what you're going to face, then up front, somebody like Trossard or Havertz is a better option than, than Eddie and Kedia because you need those... Uh, you need those sort of link-ups uh, in around their box and, and all the rest. So, no, I wasn't particularly surprised by by anything there. Were you? No, no, no. I, I was just intrigued, I think, to see how that Havertz-Trossard relationship would play out. Um, I think it was sort of predominantly Trossard as a kind of false nine, but, you know, everything that entails means he was all over the place, you know, dragging players out of position, coming deep at times. Havertz was pushing on. There were points in the game where it looked almost like an old-fashioned 4-4-2, mm. big man, little man, strike partnership up there. Um, and, you know, it was actually quite difficult to interpret sort of what our overall shape might have been because we were so dominant. You mm. know, we, we were so often in their half that a lot of our players were pressed on. You know, there were times where we had four or five players in the penalty box yeah. um, at, at points in that half, which was really impressive and really showed how in control we were. As for West Ham, I mean, they're going through an interesting period. They sold a couple of attacking players uh, in the January transfer window. Ben Rama was one, another, I forget. Somebody else left the club. Um, oh, Spanish guy, Spanish guy. Oh, Fornells. Yeah, and they didn't really replace them. Mm. Um, you know, they seem to be playing a fullback at left wing in this game. And it was quite a negative lineup. Um, Antonio's out injured as well. So yeah, I, I, I th- and Paqueta too. So I think uh, it, they were pretty negative. I think calling it a low block is kind of, is a little bit uh, kind to them. I mm. mean, essentially they were just a team who, didn't have the ball and didn't have any territory. Yeah, and didn't know what to do with the ball when they got it and weren't allowed to do anything with the ball, you know, when they got it. It's quite interesting. You know, they beat Manchester United, they beat Arsenal in December, and since then they haven't won a game. They've gone out of the FA Cup to Bristol City. You know, they they pretty much shot their load against us and United and have been fairly fairly bad since, you know. Mm. Um, you're always looking at a, a game like this and go, well, their form has been bad. You know, is today the day they turn it around? But... But no, it wasn't. And I think it was really interesting from the very, very start. I don't know if you noticed this. Our kickoff routine changed. Did you see that? Ah, I think I missed the first 30 seconds. Right. You'll have to enlighten me. So usually what we do with the kickoff is we play it back. It goes to David Ryan. He launches it long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done that for a yeah. few seasons now. This time we did not. Went back mm. to David Ryan. We just kept possession. And I think that was deliberate. It was a way of setting the tone for what was to come. And it was a way of showing, okay, we're not going to give you this ball back. If you want the ball, you're going to have to come and win it. You're going to have to take it from us. And, you know, West Ham just weren't able to do that. I think by by 13 minutes, they'd flashed up a, a graphic on the screen that Arsenal had had 90% possession in the opening 13 minutes, you wow. know? And that kind of dominance, you know, it's not completely unusual but away from home against a team who you know you've lost to a couple of times this season who 
should be, because of what they've done in the last few weeks, um, when it comes to their own form, absolutely fired up at home in front of their own fans, determined to make life really difficult for Arsenal, the way they made life difficult for us at the Emirates. And, you know, there'll be a lot of focus on how bad West Ham were. And that's, you know, true. When you lose a game 6-0, you were bad. When you're 4-0 down at halftime, you were bad. But I think sometimes that detracts from the team that has been really, really good. And West Ham were made to look bad by Arsenal yesterday from start to finish all the way through. I think we deserve a whole lot more credit for being good than West Ham do for being bad. I think that's I think that's broadly true. I think they were especially bad in that little period before half-time. And mm. Arsenal really capitalised then and kind of ran away with it, as it were. But, you know, that first half hour, we were still very dominant. And at that point, you know, it was a, a relatively um, evenly poised game in terms of the scoreline anyway. And I think we were doing a lot right in that time. Um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think we were very, very good. I also think they were very bad. And what was... I suppose most impressive about us and maybe what was felt a little bit fresh and a little bit of a change from what we saw before Christmas is that in the period where they were struggling, we were really, really ruthless. With yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you could probably draw some parallels with the game at the Emirates in a way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think possession wise, you know, I think we had more possession in the home games. By halftime, it was like 72% possession to 28, and yesterday was maybe 70-30. So it's fairly minimal. But what was certainly a lot more effective, you know, that game, was that the one where we had 30 shots? And, you know, you couldn't say really that there were a load of big, big chances in there, right? Yeah. Whereas I think... The way we used the ball yesterday, the the link-ups that we had, you know, within the front three, um, you know, I thought Havertz and, and Trossard actually combined really well together at times. Mm-hmm. Um, we were dangerous looking. We were more dangerous looking in this game than we were in, in the home game. But, I you think know, that's the, true, yeah. As, uh, as you say... Sort there of, were chances, weren't there? You know, yeah. I remember Trossard having a headed chance from a sack yeah. across... He forced a very good save out of Ariola, you know, just sort of one of those where he uh, struck it almost too cleanly, too well, and it was quite close to the keeper, but mm-hmm. still it was good reactions. Um, Odegaard had a shot deflected wide. Yeah. And, and yeah, regularly I was seeing Arsenal get five or six men, you know, beyond the kind of 18-yard line and really getting bodies in the box and, and applying the pressure, turning the screw on West Ham. Yes, and I think, you know, the, one of the things that, that is maybe overlooked in the in discussion of the home game is that, like, people will say Arsenal were bad because we got beaten 2-0, and there's an element of truth to that, of course. But I think West Ham that night were very good defensively. Their low mm. block really worked. Their unambitious approach to the game paid off because they got a, 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 not a fortunate goal, but they got a goal and then they got a set-piece goal and, you know, it, it just went their way. Whereas I think yesterday that same commitment to the defending was just not there. It just mm. wasn't there, you know. And you mentioned how that period before the before the break, when we really turned the screw, that they sort of fell apart. I, I think that's true, but it required us to open the scoring set piece. 
you know, these goals look very simple when they go in that way. It was quite similar to the goal Saliba scored. Was it against Burnley? Quite possibly. Quite where possibly. it was just a cross and he's just, you know, stronger than anyone around him and he heads it home. And I think there was something to uh, to that, uh, similar uh, to that in, in the first goal, a good corner from Declan Rice and uh, um, William Saliba headed home. It was quite funny, wasn't it? Because when Rice was going over to the to the corner to take it, there was some sort of pantomime boos and then they were saying, oh, there's a bit of applause there for Declan Rice. Don't think they were applauding then after that goal went in. <laughs> <laughs> if there was any applause, uh, it quickly stopped when William Saliba nodded that ball into the back of the net. Uh, that's something I should have said about the lineup. You know, although we had Trossard in, and you know he's uh, as centre forwards go, he's about as small as they come. It was a very tall, physical Arsenal team. You know, if you look, it was basically four centre halves at the back: White and Kivior at fullback, Gabriel and Saliba in the middle. In midfield, you had Rice, you had Havertz. Uh, there was a lot of height and power there. Mm. And, you know, from those set pieces, especially the corners early on, we were doing that thing where we just loaded the back post. We had sort of four or five players all starting at the back post and then, you know, making their moves from there. And it just seemed to flummox West Ham. I think if you watch the goal as well, Saliba... Uh, before he gets the ball, Ben White just gives the slightest, <laughs> slightest little nudge to yes. the goalkeeper. Yes, he uh, does. I love him so much. Uh, I, which I don't <laughs> think is sufficient really to explain quite how caught in no man's land the goalkeeper is. But uh, yeah, you know, it's classic Ben White antics. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry, I have zero sympathy for any team that leaves Ben White within the proximity of their goalkeeper without putting somebody in the way to deal sure. with him. Because you, you know by now what Ben White is about and what he's going to try and do and what his role is, because it's a very clearly defined role, right? When we have these set pieces, his job is basically to unsettle the goalkeeper. Yeah. You know, well, and he's been doing it. Yeah, do whatever's necessary. Exactly. And he's been doing it for a long time. Sometimes he gets away with it. Sometimes he doesn't. As we've seen, we've had a goal disallowed because, you know, he was very gently caressing the hand of the Leicester goalkeeper that time. <laughs> but, you know, if you're, uh, uh, if you're preparing for a match against Arsenal and you don't have a plan in place to deal with Ben White when there is a corner or a set piece, I'm sorry, but you know it's all it's all on you mm-hmm. so it's one nil and that sort of i think not quite settled it down because you know you're as long as it's scoreless you're like oh is this going to be you know another one of those days and then immediately we could have had what five goals before halftime when you think about it there was a yeah there I was think a, Saka had a hat trick of chances before the penalty yeah um, i mean there was one a brilliant cross from from Kivior yeah. which he headed wide. And then there was one, I think Odegaard played him in. He tried to just sort of dink it over the goalkeeper and just caught it too much with the outside of his foot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Havertz was looking for a, a pass there um, as well. So, you know, there were chances straight away. As soon as the goal went in, West Ham fell apart defensively. I don't know what happened. You know, sometimes a goal going in can can make you, you know, redouble your defensive efforts uh, and and get organized, but this just seemed to completely undermine what what little confidence they had in their own approach. Yeah, it did. It did. And and you know, their over the next couple of goals, their offside line was pretty poor, one from open play, one from a, a set piece piece situation. But Arsenal, as I said, they were ruthless, you know, and they 
I think they sensed West Ham's vulnerability. They knew how important it was to try and kill the game, especially, I suppose, having been dragged back into a match in this fixture last season. And yeah, you know, I was really encouraged by the way that they kind of seized the momentum that Mm. that West Ham seemed prepared to hand them. Mm. Having missed a couple of chances, Mm. it was Bakayo Saka then who won the who won the penalty. I need, um, I don't know if you can tell me, but maybe the, uh, the the situation with the goalkeeper. I thought the double jeopardy thing only applied when the player made an obvious attempt for the ball. Mm. And I don't think the goalkeeper did there. I wonder, you know, it's moot, obviously, at this point, but I do wonder if that might have been more of a red card than a yellow card for, for Ariola. I know there was a player on the line, but is it not the very definition of, of denying a goal-scoring opportunity without, you know, making an t- attempt to play the ball? It's one thing if he goes diving for the ball to, to try and get it and misses it, but, but Saka gone beyond him. He just pulled him back. Yeah, it was a very odd sort of lazy challenge, I thought, yeah. from Ariola. Um who had a very <laughs> a very mixed afternoon. I mean, made that good save from Trossard, but I thought was otherwise pretty poor in the game. Um, and yeah, I, I just felt like this goal, I mean, it's a nice pass from Trossard, nice run from Saka, good bit of skill around the goalie, but it all just looked way too easy from an Arsenal perspective. You know, it's sort of like quite a straightforward loop ball over the top. Saka runs onto it. You don't see that happen very often at Premier League level because defences generally make it harder for you than that. Mm. And West Ham just didn't. Um, Were you confident in Saka when he stepped up? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, because you have to really think about this young man's character. Hmm. You know, at 22 years of age, you know, he's been through a lot in terms of ups and downs and and what's happened to him from the penalty spot, right? Not just for Arsenal because he missed one here last season and obviously that is that was a moment for would, would that have made that game 3-1? 3-1. I think yeah, it would have made so it, it 3-1. Have Real control. Yeah, look, who knows what what would have happened in the rest of the season, but it did feel like a little bit of a a sliding doors moment in terms of our title challenge. I know there was a lot more to it, but 3-1, I think we go on and win that game against West Ham, and who knows what happens from there. But, you know, he's also missed a big penalty for England in his time. And yesterday, you know, he, he... he just picked the ball up and knew exactly what he was going to do with this. I was, I was... 99.9% confident that he was going to score there. Mm. You? That's good. No, I, I, <laughs> I never am with Bukaya, I have to say. like, and, and I think it might be a hangover from the fact that I was in that stadium. I was in Wembley Stadium for the Euros final uh, when he missed that penalty kick. And it was, you know, horrible moment for me as an Arsenal fan and an Englishman as well. Um, so I think I carry the trauma of that a little bit into sure. whenever I see him step up for a penalty. Uh, there are players who I've felt much more confident about over the years taking pens. Um, and I think in the summer, I was kind of like, Odegaard should be the penalty taker. Uh, and he did take the one, I think, on the opening day of the season, or certainly very early on in the season. But delighted uh, that he put it away and he did, do so pretty comprehensively. It looked like he gave the goalkeeper the eyes, uh, went the other direction, and I, th- I think that was his fiftieth 
Arsenal goal, is that right? That was his 50th Arsenal goal. It was also his, uh, the like in his career, he has taken seven penalties, eight penalties for Arsenal and scored uh, seven of them. Mm. Mm. So, Great. you know, he's got a good track record from the spot. True. So I, true, true, that's true. why I was confident. And I was just confident because it, it felt like a moment for him. And when there is that opportunity for Bakayo Saka, more often than not, he will take it. You know, you don't do what he has done in, you know, he got to 50 goals. Is it, He's 51 goals and 49 assists now for Arsenal. Is that? Uh, yeah, that after his second goal, yeah. it's 51 goals, 49 assists, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's an incredible, uh, I don't know why transfer marked have him on 53 assists, but I think there's something to do with penalties. One being uh, given as a, an assist for some of the stats. So, you know, you, you just don't do what he has done at his age without being able to step up in those moments. I think he's... No, and, um, I, and I think as well, like, he probably has a... I think missing a couple of high-profile penalties probably gives him a, a very good perspective on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he probably understands that if you take penalties for your whole career, there are going to be some important ones you miss. Um, but you're probably still going to score most of them. Yeah. And I think sort of understanding that and accepting that and wanting to take on that responsibility anyway um, tells you a bit about the kind of character he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, And he made no mistake, put it away. 2-0 and pretty quickly it's 3-0. There's a free kick out on the right. Declan Rice Mm. curls in. Gabriel comes over and whispers something to Declan Rice. That's happened a lot. Have you noticed that in in the last few weeks that... When we're taking free kicks from around those sort of areas, certainly in the opposition half, whoever's over it, it's usually Rice and, and Odegaard, but Gabriel has often been over to have a discussion. I don't know what they're saying. Um, stick it on my head, son. Yeah. I think it, whatever it the Brazilian. Because I'm going to jump higher than everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to loaf it in if you just fucking stick it in there. Um, but he has been involved in those discussions. It was a, a very good ball in, really good movement, really good header from from Gabriel. Any questions about West Ham defensively? I think I I think what's what Arsenal do from these set pieces makes it really, really difficult for for the opposition. You know, the way they stand offside, jump back onside, and it confuses and frightens the fuck out of the defense. Yeah. Because you don't know where to go and what to do. And I think there's, you know, people have talked about Nicholas Yeover and the work that he has done. That kind of choreographing of that movement is right off the training ground. You have oh, to work 100%. on that. You really do have to work on that. The timing of it is really important. And it makes it so, if you're the defender and you're going, well, he's standing offside and then, oh shit, he's onside now. And then, you know. I think it's absolutely bamboozling at times the way Arsenal move from these set pieces. And, you know, it's playing a big part in why we are so effective and scoring so many goals from from set pieces. Yeah, and I think it was Ben Johnson on this one who sort of got caught in two minds and essentially played about three Arsenal players on the side. Um, But I think you're right, that movement is so integral and we continue to innovate with it across the course of the season. You know, I spoke about... um, the corner from which Saliba scored all these like four or five players standing outside the back post and then starting their movement from there. You know, it, it, it we're giving, and I think that was probably 
in part specifically designed for West Ham because they put Suchek on the near post. Yeah. And that's an area where they're really strong. So, you know, finding these weak points and exploiting them, you know, it's, it's imagine if you'd told us uh, during the kind of latter days of Arsene Wenger that we'd become relatively soon afterwards the, the set-piece team in the league. Uh, it would have been difficult to believe, but yeah. there you go. It is counterintuitive, uh, isn't it? Because of, you know... <sighs> the sort of tactical approach to uh, to the game that Mikel Arteta has and, and the way that you imagine he, he wants his team to play football. But he said it a few weeks ago when, I can't remember after which game it was, but he said, if we want to be the best team in the world, we have to be the best at everything. Mm. And that's true. You know, there is a need to absolutely maximize every possible chance of scoring a goal. And some people might think it's a little, I don't know, is it, you know, set pieces have often been the, the sort of the remit of teams who, you know, like West Ham, for example, yesterday, they might consider their best chance of scoring a goal a set piece if they get a yeah. corner, a free well, kick, something James like Ward that. James Ward-Prowse for that reason. Yeah. I mean, he's a very, very good set piece taker, but don't ask him to run because, <laughs> you know. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get you a guy who can do both, like yeah. Declan Rice. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And, and I think... You know, Jova, set-piece coach at Arsenal, what's he worth? You know, like, mm. if I'm him, I'm going in asking for a pay rise roundabout now because what he is delivering in terms of tangible results at both ends of the pitch is really, really impressive. Yes, I, think. I completely agree. And, and I suppose credit has to go to Mikel Arteta ultimately, who persuaded him to join the club uh, and obviously knew him previously. But uh, he has been a really impressive addition and is, is kind of, you know, the secret weapon of this Arsenal team, or not so secret weapon at this point in time because no. we are so effective from those set pieces. And, and again, interesting to see another delivery from Declan Rice. You know, when you've got a team as tall as we had in this game, you can afford a guy like Declan Rice to be the one delivering the, the ball. And uh, yeah, I thought... Both his crosses in this game were were very very good. First time he's ever recorded two assists in a Premier League game, I believe. Well, there you go, and what a what a game to get those assists in. And I think, mm. you know, the fact that everybody does know how good we are from set pieces, yet we remain very effective from set pieces, is another string in the bow for for Nicholas Jover and and for the players and the staff and the you know the coaching that goes into to making this happen. And like you say, Declan Rice is taking some of the set pieces. Ben White is in there, but he's kind of like, you know, his role is is um, chief irritant, if you like, more than somebody who's going to attack the ball. But Ben White is obviously very good in the air as well as a defender, centre half. I know he's playing at right back, but, you know, he, he's strong in that area. So we're not, it's not like we're throwing all of our big men in there and getting the little guy to chuck it in and hope for the best. You know, there's real... No, no, no. And, and also there's nobody better in those scenarios than Gabriel. Um, you know, I, yeah. I, we spoke... James Benj uh, did a stat and then I think had to change it when they when they threatened to take one of Gabriel's goals off him a couple of weeks ago. But oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's now officially the case that he has scored the most goals from set pieces of any player in the Premier League since he joined Arsenal. So over three and a half seasons in England, Gabriel now has 14 goals from dead ball scenarios. And as James wow. points out, a lot of those other players who are right up there with him, they're shooting from free kicks. It's people like 
Ward Prowse or a Salah or a Tony, uh, you know, guys who get to shoot from direct free kicks. This is, he's doing that purely from being a kind of penalty box aerial threat. That is amazing. You know, look, central defenders who score are, you know, not exactly, um, you know, we've had a few of those in the past. But Gabriel is not whacking them in from 30 yards like Thomas Vermaelen did, if you remember. You know, this is no, a no. very different skill set. And, you know, the reality is when you are that good, people know and they will try and do things to stop you scoring. So the ability to keep doing it at the rate that he's doing it is is just hugely, hugely impressive. Um, it is, yeah. I mean, 14 goals in three and a half seasons, that's a lot. I feel like we've probably got forwards <laughs> who, 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 you know, aren't that far ahead of that. So, yeah, um, I've got to take my hat off to him. Mm. He's the best in the league in that scenario. 4-0, Leandro Trossard with a, you know, a really good goal. I think what's what I like about maybe goals four and five is that they look really simple and you could say, well, the defending's not brilliant there. Maybe it's not, but... What the two finishes do from from Trossard and Saka, which we'll come on to, obviously, they mm. just they make it look really easy. It's not a hundred percent like a gift or anything like that. Trossard's finish is is excellent. West Ham probably could get a bit closer, but you know you just can't stop those. No, it's it's a really lovely finish, and he sets it for himself beautifully. You know, takes the ball under control, just gets it out of his feet opens his body up. You know what he's want, going to want to do, but very difficult to stop it. Um, and, you know, I think, it was it Odegaard who found him in the build-up? Yep. Uh, uh, you know, and, and he got the assist that I think his player deserved. You know, he, he produced a beautiful pass for Saka for that chance that just sort of went across the goal. Um, I think he'd been very good, very busy in the final third and picking out some of those runs. Finds Trossard. He's a very good finisher. I feel like we say it quite often, but mm. he really, really is. And there's that mad stat about him, speaking of stats, which is that um, I think only he's he's averaging a goal and an assist something like every 90 minutes. Only Thierry Henry and Robin <laughs> Van Persie have a better record of goal contributions uh, for Arsenal at this point in time, which is kind of crazy. That is mental, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, part of that is because I think he's been a really effective sub, right? So he's had situations where he's not played that many minutes, but he's got himself a goal or got himself an assist. Mm -hmm. But yeah, remarkable rate of productivity. So yeah, this was actually before the West Ham game. So I don't know what the latest is, but it was of players to have played a minimum of a thousand minutes for Arsenal. Only Thierry Henry and Ron Van Persie have a better minutes per goal involvement than Leandro Trossard in Arsenal's Premier League history. Wow. A brilliant goal. Brilliant goal. And he's, you know, he had a little dip in form, as I think most players did, you know, around that kind of... We've taken him off the corners, Andrew. You'll be glad to see. Hey, look, you know, it worked. It worked. (laughs) I dropped old uh, Nicholas Jover a little... um, Yeah, sure, a little DM. Sent him a fax. uh, Said, listen... You know, I've got an idea here. Take it um, from me. Uh, yeah, take it from me. Anyway, brilliant goal, 4-0 at halftime. And West Ham made changes. They took Zuma and Alvarez off. They put Mavropanos and, and Phillips on. I was really... Uh, I watched Mikel Arteta's press conference, and he was asked about Calvin Phillips. Not mm. once, but twice. He was asked about him in the in the 
pre-game, uh, the live press conference, and then in the embargoed section, he was, you know, the first guy said, oh, you know, you obviously worked with him at Man City, and he was like, no, I didn't work with him. I was gone by then. I just didn't quite understand what all this focus on Mikel Arteta and Calvin Phillips was all about. I don't understand any focus on Calvin Phillips whatsoever. <laughs> you know? No, nor I particularly, but I suppose... People just looking for an angle, aren't they? Maybe if they've got to write something about West Ham, they've got to mm. find something interesting, but quite embarrassing, I suppose, to ask him about him when they didn't actually work together. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a curious situation. A guy, you know, was kind of a starter in the England team and then didn't get a kick for Man City and now yeah. trying to relaunch his career. Absolutely ideal, I suppose, for him to be coming on at this game. Yeah, perfect. 4-0 down at half-time. <laughs> Just the platform you want to recapture your form. Did you get many messages about the Newcastle game? <laughs> no, I didn't. It's I didn't. so weird because I did. I got a few and it was like, oh, 4-0 up at half-time? Away from home? Where have what I seen this wrong? before? And it's oh, just no. Like- I, I have to confess, you know, I've admitted to some anxiety pre-game. I've admitted to some anxiety when Bukayo Saka stepped up to take that penalty kick. Falling up at half time, I was feeling pretty confident. Pretty, I, yeah. pretty, pretty confident. Me too. Yeah. But it was just funny, you know. The trauma it never leaves you. Oh, that's the thing. F- football trauma runs deep. It really yeah. does. Uh, but that, I mean, there was literally no chance of that happening again. Um, you know, West Ham were were, yeah, there was no way they were coming back into this game. It was really a question of, you know, what way Arsenal were going to play the second half and what were they going to try and do? And and I enjoyed the fact that we didn't just sort of sit there and see, see the game out. We tried to score more goals. We tried to make things happen. We stayed in control. We just didn't let West Ham back into it. You know, you could see, you know, West Ham... You know, when you go in 4-0 at halftime, 4-0 down at halftime, you know, the the dressing room message is probably, well, this game is gone. At least sort of play for a bit of pride. They couldn't even be bothered to do that. No. They were just I, like... I mean, to be fair, most of their fans had left at this point in time. <laughs> yeah. I, I did enjoy those sort of aerial shots. Was it just before half time of like uh, supporters streaming it's a, away? It's a from- weird one, though. You know, I think the TV companies are doing that a lot this season. Are they? I yeah, I've I've noticed it more than once, not just yesterday, in other games not involving Arsenal where you know the result is is happening and they're showing fans leaving at like 87 minutes. What game was I watching? At the, what game was it? I can't remember. Game over the weekend. Could have been mm. the Wolves. Maybe I was watching the Wolves Brentford game on Saturday. Okay. And Brentford scored quite late on, and then it was about 88 minutes, and some of the fans were like, well, fuck it, I'll just go or, you know, get a pint in early, you know. And TV cameras are on them. You know, this sort of weird... I suppose it feeds the the banter narrative, doesn't it? It does Um, a bit, but it's a bit bit odd. Well, I was sort of thinking about it if I'd been a West Ham fan, and I was like, what would I be thinking or doing? And I think the moment that Bukayo Saka lashed in the fifth goal <laughs> to the bottom corner. I think personally that would have been my breaking point. You would have you would have called it quits at that point. I you? think so, yeah. There was something about the emphatic nature of the finish that was just like 
this game is so over. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm getting out I of here. Be, out I'm, yeah, I'm getting out of here before Declan Rice scores one. That's that's what you'd be thinking. Yeah, know? exactly, right? <laughs> While you still can. Yeah, I mean, it's a lovely goal from Saka. Again, you know, our West Ham guilty of not doing as much as they could do? Probably. Again, watch Ward Prowse. Doesn't, doesn't fancy running. Doesn't fancy a little sprint towards Odegaard to cut out the pass. Saka steps inside, whacks it in the bottom corner. It's a great finish. Um, I think, know. actually, I know the next goal, you know, was a special one for a lot of reasons, but what? I think this was my favourite goal of the day, the fifth one. Yeah. I, I, something very visually pleasing about the way Saka just kind of drifted inside and, like, wrong-footed the keeper. It was a lovely, lovely take. Yep, really excellent goal. And then the uh, the sixth goal, I mean... What a hit from Declan Rice, but we have to give flowers to uh, to Ben White. I mean, that is the assist of a lifetime there, isn't it? You know, wrong-footing two players, albeit your own players, to roll it perfectly into the path of Declan Rice to, to smash it home. Yeah, and expert, expertly left by uh, Trossard and Odegaard. One for the training <laughs> ground, you can see. Um, and yeah, yeah, what a hit from Declan Rice. I mean, it, it, there was something... Sounds strange to say, but kind of inevitable about it. When you saw the ball kind of go between Trossard and Odegaard, you thought, well, someone's got to hit that, you know? Mm. The way it just sat up and, wow, did he did he hit it? I mean, he took that beautifully. It is a brilliant goal, a brilliant finish. Keeper has no chance. Um, you know, it's his second long ranger of the season, isn't it? Albeit uh, first past an actual goalkeeper. Um, oh, Chelsea yeah, of one. course. Yeah, Chelsea one was, yeah. Uh, How on earth did he manage to keep his cool there and not celebrate that? I don't know. But remarkable stuff. I mean, yeah, I think I would have certainly uh, <laughs> had a bit of a celebration. Um, <laughs> probably given them, you know, ah, look, he obviously has a lot of affection for West Ham. Sometimes that not celebrating thing feels a bit performative. Yeah, yeah. Other yeah. times I can sort of understand it. I mean, I think players should celebrate goals and they should be able to celebrate goals without it offending the opposition fans, you know? It's not like he was ever going to do an Adi Bayor and, and slide on his knees in front of the West Ham fans and give him a, uh, the finger. But I think maybe in his mind, it was a case that, you know, by the time it was 5-0, all the pantomime booing had stopped completely. You know, they they couldn't even be bothered to do that and who could blame them at 5-0 down. And as a way of kind of drawing a line under all of it, I think the non-celebration did that, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because now it, it might be a case you go back to West Ham and there might be a few guys, who, but like for the most part, people will say, you know, uh, you were respectful when you came back here the first time in the Premier League, scored the goal, you've moved on, we've moved on. Um, I think West Ham certainly have got bigger things to worry about than whether Declan Rice has moved to uh, uh, to another London club. I think they need to look, you know, maybe at the manager and all that. So as a way of just drawing a line under all of it, I, I understand what he did there. Yes, yeah. He respectfully booted the ball into the top corner from 30 yards. <laughs> and then somebody said to me afterwards, actually, that... Sometimes the decision to not celebrate 
can be so conscious as to almost be a celebration. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I think in this case, that kind of felt true. It was sort of like his way of saying, your humiliation is complete. I, there is no need to rub salt into these gaping wounds. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and and wow, what a way to cap it off. I did wonder if we might get Elliot's fabled 10-0. Uh, it really felt like... Anything was possible after that. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, he made a couple of uh, changes then, didn't he? Very quickly. He did. Yeah. Nicola Arteta, he, um, you know, he took Rice that was, off. That was his last kick in the game, I think. Right. Even more um, cutting for, for West Ham. His last kick of the game was a screamer into the top corner. Um, you know, he did make changes. I think after that, there's sort of like, oh, 6 0. There's a, a kind of inevitability about what way the final uh, stages are going to play out. Nevertheless, we did try and score more. Mohamed Elneny came on, had a couple of goes, put it over. There were a couple of moments where, you know, maybe we, we could have made more of uh, a chance in in the final third. Mm. Um, Eddie had a shot saved. Eddie had a shot saved. Reese Nelson could have had a go with his left foot at one stage, I think. Yeah. Uh, went for a cross. Um, I suppose the most interesting aspect of the final stages of the game was the fact that Ethan Waneri came on um, and got a good few minutes under his belt. Mikel Arteta was saying that the players were whispering on the bench, put Ethan on, put Ethan on. And that's a, a big moment for for him. That made me feel a bit sorry for the other young players. <laughs> I was like, who was, who's whispering put Ruel on? You know what I mean? Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that. But I think, um, yeah, I was really pleased to see one of the young guys get a, a run out. And uh, what a moment for him. I mean, he's still only 16. Yeah. Is that right? He is only 16. He doesn't look 16 at no. all. He does no, not no, look no. 16. And look, you can read too much into, or you can try and read too much into, you know, a 15-minute cameo or whatever it was. But I, I texted you this, and I think... You know, when I look at him, his sort of physical uh, build, the way he moves with the ball, the way he holds onto it and then just knocks it away at the last minute, shades of Jack Wilshire in there. And I don't mean to, you know, jinx him, and hopefully he, he will have a, a much more uh, injury-free career than Jack, unfortunately, wasn't able to uh, enjoy. But, you know, this is what we do as football fans. We see a young player come through, and it's like, well, who is he? Who is, mm. Which of the former greats is this young guy? And, you know, he is 16, but it was very, very evident how seamlessly he connected with all the all the players around him. Like, he had as many touches as Reese Nelson, and Reese Nelson came on like a good 10, 12 minutes before him. You know, so he yeah. really got involved. I thought it was a, it was a very interesting cameo from him. I think so. And Arteta spoke about it, didn't he, afterwards? You know, you have to have the trust of your teammates. Do they give you the ball? I've certainly watched games in the past, in the quite recent past, actually, where a young player's been in the starting eleven, but you've sort of had the sense that, you know, the first teamers were not in a hurry to, yeah. to find them. Um, that wasn't the case here. I think, obviously, everyone's aware he's a really talented boy. And, yeah, Incredibly exciting for him to be involved in a Premier League game again at yeah. such a young age. When you look at the players who've played at that kind of age for Arsenal and what they've gone on to do, it's usually a really positive indicator. Um, so, yeah, exciting. We may look back on 
on this day and think of it as one of his the first sightings of a player who went on to be terrific for Arsenal. Yeah. I hope so. There was another nice little moment towards the end when Eddie and Keddie have fouled Mavropanos. I don't know if you noticed this. This was good. Where he just sort of fouled him, you know, tried to win the ball, but obviously yeah. fouled him. But you know that thing that happens where there's a foul and you look around, oh, look, it's my former teammate. Mm. You know, it's 6-0, it's the end of the game. You could have a little moment, a little like, there you go. And, and Eddie just sort of completely blanked him. It was really funny. <laughs> I- <laughs> yeah, I mean, f- fair enough. I, I, I think as well, there was a nice moment in our own penalty box where yeah. West Ham had a kind of sniff of a chance. And I think at 6-0 up, Arsenal, I think David Raya made a save and Gabriel made a block, mm. showed kind of more desire and intensity defensively than West Ham had at pretty much any point in the game. Yes. Um, and I think that tells you a bit about kind of the mentality of the players at this point in time. I think their focus has really sharpened and I think, you know, they see what's in front of them now and what's possible. And I, yeah, I really liked that moment, the sort of desire to preserve mm. the clean sheet, even though the game was beyond one at that point. Oh, absolutely. And just, you know, to finish part one, you know, three points obviously was the most important thing, but six goals sends a bit of a statement as well. It, does, it think, doesn't hurt the goal difference. No, it definitely well. doesn't hurt the goal difference. You know, there's been so much discussion about goal scoring this season for Arsenal, so much discussion about our forwards, what we've got in the forward line, what we need in the forward line, what we're missing in the forward line. Um, I watched the uh, AFCON final last night and, and um, Ozymen did not impress, really. Um, that's a discussion, obviously, for another day. But for all that, without seven key, key players, but without seven first-team players, we've gone to West Ham, one 6 nil. I think it sends a statement about what this Arsenal team are capable of, where the goals can come from, that variety that I know some people would would trade maybe a little bit of variety for more of that, in inverted commas, killer up front. But we've now scored more goals this season than we had at the same period last season. We've more goals after 24 games this season than last season. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, there are there are real positives to take from that. I know a 6-0 scoreline will will sort of tip the balance a little bit, right? Uh, and I'm not denying that we haven't had our issues in front of goal this season because clearly we have. But when the title race could potentially, might not, but potentially it could come down to goal difference. A day like yesterday could be really, really important when it comes to the, the, the final stages of the, of the season, if we can hang on in there, if it comes down to who scored the most goals, what goal difference is. You know, I was really pleased that we didn't just settle for 4-0 because that game could have finished 4-0. You know, we got a couple of extra in the second half and I think it was, it was very impressive and I think Arteta will be very pleased with uh, the ruthlessness, uh, you know, to use that word again. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think we're behind Man City on goal scored now. But it's not like we're a ton off them. I think we're three goals off Man City's tally for the season, albeit they've played a game less. We're two goals off Liverpool mm-hmm. uh, in terms of goals scored. and Conceded you know, fewer than both of those teams. Yeah, exactly. We've got the best defensive record in the league. So, uh, yeah, a, a really, really good day. 
And it really sort of puts in Arsenal, Arsenal in a strong position. It builds on, it consolidates what we did against Liverpool, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Um, yeah. And sets us up nicely for for everything to come. And you know, as we head towards March and that critical period of the season, yeah, it looks like we're we're entering it in a in a good position. Yeah, a couple of away games now before our next home game. We uh, travel to Burnley next week. Yeah, and then uh, Porto in the Champions League before Newcastle. So you know that that momentum, that confidence, I think is. Uh, is going to be really crucial for these upcoming games. So look, good day all in all. And uh, as we said, six of the best for West Ham and no less than they deserved. Right. Let's take a little break. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter, at GunnarBlog, and at Arsblog, also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Um, I just want to say, Andrew, by mm. the way, thank you uh, to <laughs> all the listeners for all the feedback on last week. Uh, <laughs> particularly my rant at the beginning. It was quite an extraordinary reaction. Um, yes, I think it struck a chord, shall we say? But a few people did get in touch to tell me that um, Chris Sutton is actually an all right guy. It's just a sort of on-air persona. So I think it's important we clarify: it's not that Chris Sutton is a cunt. It's that he just all it is he looks, talks, and sounds like he is a cunt. Do you see what I mean? It's a very subtle distinction. So he always sounds and seems like a cunt. 
but that is just his on air persona in real right. life not a cunt but everything you see and hear from him will say cunt right it's just a, just a character it's just his on air persona <laughs> and to clarify i it's not that i james mcnicholas the real life person think he's a cunt but my on air persona <laughs> absolutely does all right Fair enough. Okay. Does that clear that up? I think we've got that clarified. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah, in case yeah. anyone was in any doubt whatsoever. Cool, 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 cool. All right. I'm, I'm going to start with the questions, if that's okay. Yes. Uh, Senior Grey Dog says, most goodliest morning. If Liverpool was a fuck-off win, what would you call this one? Liverpool uh, was a fuck-off win. I guess this is a... Go fuck yourselves, win. Go fuck yourselves, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like <laughs> it's sort of win that makes me almost feel sorry for the other team because it's so emphatic and so demoralising and so uh, clear cut. I mm. mean, yeah, I, I, it's a win where you've put somebody in their place, isn't it? Yeah. Who were the Who were the quotes from that I enjoyed? I think it was from Soufal. I've right. never experienced such a big loss like today, and I hope I never experience it again. It's so yeah. embarrassing for me and the team when Arsenal are passing the ball to each other and their fans are applauding every pass. It's embarrassing for us, for the fans, for West Ham. Maybe we showed Arsenal too much respect, but we should never play like this at home. I, it's, I think, you know, as much as I'd love to have a sort of catchy, a sweary name for it, I think it was sort of a football lesson, really. It really was, you know, we we properly schooled them with all the corporal punishment that used to entail. The hammers got hammered. No two the ways The hammers about got it. hammered, yeah. yeah. Um, they got what was coming and, and, you know, in the League Cup game, we, we played poorly that day, really poorly. I'm not sure we played that poorly at any other point in the season. Fulham. Um, yeah, maybe so. But yeah. I think the... Uh, I, you know, that in the home game, as we said in part one, it was kind of the margins that went against us. And what I really liked is that we sort of adhered to those principles, but just sort of added the yeah. ruthlessness that was required. Can I just follow that up? Do you mind if I follow that up with another one? Raisins with an E says, Saka was quoted after the game saying, I think we smelled blood today and went for the kill. How happy does that make you? And, you know, I think we kind of discussed that in part one, that, that we did turn the screw a little bit in the second half. I wanted to ask you about Saka's post-match comments, his post-match interview on, on Sky, I think it was. And he said, well, you know, I don't know if I can be really happy today because uh, I missed a couple of chances. And he scored mm. a big penalty, won the penalty, scored a brilliant goal. And he's, you know, saying, "I'm oh, fuck, could have done better. I like that. Yeah, I think even when he got given the man of the match, didn't Odegaard say, oh, I was waiting for the hat-trick? Um, <laughs> setting high standards yeah. uh, for himself and high expectations. But, you know, those numbers that he's produced since he came to the team are amazing. What is it now? 51 goals, 49 assists, 100 goal contributions in little over 200 games, isn't it? I think 210 appearances, mm. something like that. That is amazing. Um, and he continues to be so consistent in his output. It feels like even when his form amongst us is kind of the subject of debate or scrutiny, 
when I say us, I mean the Arsenal fans. You know, sure. I feel like there's often sort of, uh, uh, you know, conversation about is Saka really at his best? Does he really hit form? And yet, week after week, the numbers speak for themselves. I kind of feel like if you were a fan of another club and you listened in to Arsenal podcasts over the course of the season and how often they sort of deal with the question of, is Saka really on form? I think they'd be completely flabbergasted and amazed at like, the degree to which we debate that. Maybe, but I, I, you know, I think there is something to it as well. I think, you know, he is so incredibly productive and I think it's also not unfair to say that he hasn't been at his very, very best this season. No, and, I, I, listen, I don't think it's wrong. I just think from the outside, sure. you'd be amazed in the context of those numbers. Um, but I think it's probably fair to, to say, can he be better? Can he produce more? And I think if anything, it speaks to our faith in his talent mm. um, and his own faith in his talent, as indicated by that post-match interview. Yeah. So I think it's exciting to think that there is still more to come. Like I said, I loved his second goal. I loved yeah. it. I, I just think he's got the capability to do that almost at will, you know, to do it even more regularly than he currently does. Um, and there have been times in the past 12 to 18 months where he's looked like a player close to sort of going to a, a, an even higher level. And I, and I think it's within him to do it. Um, Agreeing, yeah, yeah. So I hope he can get there. For for club and country this season, he's got 20 goals and 14 assists. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. They're big numbers. Yeah. And and wait till he starts playing well. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just again, I mean, how extraordinary to have a player like that who costs you almost nothing, mm. you know. Uh, just what it costs to develop him, to come through your academy and be that productive, it doesn't happen very often. It happened to Spurs, mm -hmm. you know, when they got Harry Kane. Um, but it's very, very, very rare and very special. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, well, here is an interesting question. And we did talk about this a bit in part one, but Ben Satiris on Twitter says, does scoring 16 goals in the last four games end the debate over whether we need a prolific number nine. I don't think that debate will ever end. It was interesting. I I heard in the commentary yesterday, Alan Smith almost play into it at times. I think... Yeah, the Trossard, when he headed over and he said something about like, oh, if you had a real centre forward there, you know, yeah. with a couple of extra inches, you know, that, that should be a goal. I remember thinking, that's still quite a difficult chance. It was a header like about 15 yards out. And Trossard kind of did okay. And, and you know, Alan Smith was that kind of centre forward. So maybe mm. he sort of carries that baggage with him. But I did sort of think, mm, I'm not sure that moment was kind of evidence of why we need a strike. The thing is, when you win a game 6-0, you can make all the arguments about how the goals that are in this team are sufficient for us to do what we need to do. And when you have a game like the other game we had against West Ham where we don't <laughs> put the ball in the net, everyone is going to say that the answer to that problem is, you know, a, a centre forward, a number nine, a powerhouse or whatever, you know. And I genuinely don't know what the what the truth is here. 
Like, if you can score six goals against West Ham, and if you can beat Liverpool, and if you can beat Manchester City this season, if you can beat Manchester United this season, you know, does that really suggest there is a glaring, glaring weakness? I don't think it does. Is there a need or a desire to always look to improve and add something to your squad? Yes, of course. But I think, you know, football is quite random and arbitrary at times, and it doesn't always hold to the prescribed script that people think is going to play out in front of them. Mm. And that that's really difficult to analyze. It's really difficult to put a, a, a you know, a, a satisfactory explanation on why certain things happen and don't happen in football games. And I just don't know really what what else to say about this? Like, would you take a, a, a superb center forward at Arsenal tomorrow? Yeah. Who wouldn't? But is it the thing that's completely holding us back from winning a title? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a really tricky one. Mm. I think basically my feeling is, it's if it's great, for example, that you're sharing the goals amongst, say, five players. Why not share them among six? Like, if you sure. can add another goal scorer yeah, yeah. to your squad, then absolutely do it. I would say that I do have some reservations about this idea that what Arsenal need to do is go out and spend 150 million on one guy. That's going to be the difference. Yeah, I. I, I feel a little bit hesitant about that. I think that generally this club's best work, especially when it comes to recruitment, has been done at a lower level than that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like generally in football, you're better kind of hedging your bets a bit more than putting the kitchen sink and everything on one deal. Um, and yeah, I, I wonder if... Maybe it will be a kind of lower a lower fee for a player who augments the attack but isn't doesn't arrive with that pressure of like you must be the guy and we must adapt the way we play to you. Yes, I completely agree with that. I've said it before. I think maybe the the striker signing or the forward signing that we make, you know, if we make one in, in the summer is very unlikely to be uh, Aussie men. Or it's very unlikely to be Ivan Tony, even though there's a you know a huge clamour for him and, and probably a desire on his part to come and join Arsenal. I would be very surprised for various reasons if if that was a deal that Arsenal were willing to do. Um, but you're right, you know, add a player who can bring some variety to your team, add a player who can score goals. Of course, everyone wants that, but I just think the the sort of the whole debate is framed in this way that you're kind of searching for the holy grail of a footballer. And I think that's kind of impossible. Yeah. Unless you sign Declan Rice. That's, that's different. Well, we have a question here. So, you know, you talk about big money <laughs> signing. So there was a question on the discord from 
Chitty9263 who says, Goodly morning, guys. I must say, I was a bit nervous with the mammoth fee we paid for rice, as mm. most transfers in that range tend to flop. Is he so far the best transfer above £80 million in Premier League history? See attached image for reference. Here are the um, plus £80 million signings um, from least expensive to most expensive. At the bottom, Jadon Sancho. Then it's Darwin Nunez, followed by Harry Maguire, Yosko uh, Gvardiol, Anthony, Paul Pogba, Romelu Lukaku, Moises Caicedo, um, the aforementioned Declan Rice in third, followed by Jack Grealish, and then Enzo Fernandez. He's right up there. And, and, and so this is exactly what we're talking about. Like that list of names is what worries me mm. about the idea of spending £100 million plus on a centre forward. You've got to be so sure. And something that can seem entirely sure can go wrong. There's a kind of chaos factor in all acquisitions, right? You you just don't quite know how a player will fit and settle at any club. Um, but there were a lot of things about Rice that made it a safer bet. I think the fact that he was coming from the Premier League, the fact that you know he didn't even need to move house, very settled where he is, um, his nationality, um, all those things helped make it more of a guarantee. But even so, yeah, I, I think he's exceeded most people's expectations. Is he the the best signing on that list? I think, I think Grealish, while I don't think what Grealish has produced at City is sort of uh, justifies his fee, they did win a treble with him in the team. And I think that's quite, you know, that, it's sort of difficult to knock that. Sure. But I think Rice, in terms of his individual impact on a side, he's got to be right up there, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah, I agree. I think the thing about Grealish is that in order for them to win the treble with Grealish, they had to de-Grealish Grealish. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They had to completely deprogram him, stick him in a dark room for six months, stick a bag over his head and, and make him forget everything that was kind of good and enjoyable uh, enjoyable about him as a footballer. And I suppose it's to his credit that he has adapted in that way because he looked a little bit um, out of place in his first season at Manchester City. No mm. denying he had a very, very good second season uh, for City and, and they won all those trophies, of course. But, you know, did it come at a... a an individual cost for him in terms of, you know, what people enjoy and like about him or liked about him as a, as a footballer. Maybe I'm that's sure what you've so. got to do. Maybe that's what you have to do, you know, to win the big prizes, you have to adapt rather than the team uh, adapting to you. But I think it's quite interesting as well. The part of the reason he hasn't been as involved this season with Manchester city is that they've got a guy who's, you know, got a bit more Grealish about him in in Doku. You know that that kind of unpredictability, that uh, that that willingness to sort of run with the ball and try things, which Guardiola coached out of Grealish himself. Yeah, he's been tamed by Guardiola certainly, um, and it, it raises some interesting questions. You know, like would you rather be the flair guy, the hub of the team in an Aston Villa, say, or would you rather go and collect medals with Man City? 
Um, I think you'd rather uh, collect the medals. Massive. Well, there you go. He's made his choice, hasn't he? Yeah. Not just the medals, but the salary as well, yes. which doesn't hurt. Um, but I agree that it's sort of been a, cert- a certain degree of individual cost. I mean, you do get these maverick players who resist that and who stay with their club. And, you know, it was in the 90s, you know, you'd have like Matt Letizier at Southampton or whatever it might be. But I feel like now the trend is... You know, you mm. go where you can win and you go where you can make the most money. And, yeah. and that's what he's done. But, and then but, you, you think back or you look at, you know, where things are now and it's patently clear that Matt Letizia is a fucking moron. Yeah. That and that's that. why that's part of why he didn't move, I guess. <laughs> that may just be his on-air persona, Andrew. We must be careful. <laughs> but I think... Uh, which is a um, cunt, by the way. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, Rice is just a very special player. I mean, I heard sort of Gary Neville and Roy Keane trying to describe and quantify what it is about him. They were speaking about his athleticism, his power, his ability to get to the ball in situations where other players just can't. And I think that is undoubtedly a big part of what he offers. But I do think there is a kind of psychological X factor as well. I think he is a leader and a winner. And I know that those things may feel like kind of soft factors and they're difficult to define, but you do see it in football from time to time, these very special characters who can propel their teams to great feats. He he has done that at West Ham. Mm. He won a European trophy with not particularly good West Ham team. Uh, and I believe he's capable of doing it at Arsenal as well. I think he's a really, really special player. He's a, he's an all-rounder in a way, isn't he? And, yeah. you know, certain players are good at certain things and they're very good in their defined positions, whereas Rice, you know, he can play as a six, he can play as an eight, he can play at centre-half if you need him to play at centre-half. He's good on, you know, good in the air, good set-piece delivery. You know, there's a lot of things that he is really good at um, and not a lot of players are really good at a lot of things and he is certainly one of those. But he, he also has... Roy of the Rovers DNA. Yes, basically. In the summer, he plays cricket really well and stuff. Sure. Yeah, like, you know, when you need a last-minute winner against Luton, he's there. When you need a last-minute winner against Manchester United, he's there. When he goes back to his former club, he belts one in from 30 yards. There is this sort of weird comic book capability uh, for the extraordinary, which, which I think... I, and I don't mean to do him down with this, but it, it sort of surpasses his talent in some respects. Uh, and, and I, and yeah, and I don't know what that is. Sort of force of nature kind of vibe. I don't, yeah, like you, I know exactly what you're talking about, but it is very hard to sort of put it into specifics. Yeah, I think it must be mentality. Um, Character, personality, all of those things that yeah. that come, you know, like you say, it's it's um, it's intangible. But you you know it when you see it, and you know it um, when you don't have it. And certainly, he's he's got it. Uh, what about this question? Um, we've had from a couple of people. Kieran Tom Sajan says this might be short sighted, and I know he's probably the most hardworking player in the team. But are we playing better? without Jesus. And Randy Martian says, goodly morning, fellas. How does Jesus get back into this side? I can see him more as a backup winger or chaos chaos striker, but does he actually fit into Mikel's strategy anymore? I mean, the first thing, how does he get back in the side is get fit. 
and stay fit. That's yeah. that's the obvious thing to say. Um, again, this feels a little bit like, um, you know, when an injured player is is out and things aren't going well, and that player then takes on you know all the qualities that you're missing from a team. Mm. I think sometimes it works the other way too. That when a team does well in the absence of a player. You can overlook how good he is and and what he can bring to this team. Um, So I think he does still have a role, for sure. He does still have a role up front, absolutely. If we are to go where we want to go with what's left of this season, I would feel a lot more confident if we had a fit Gabriel Jesus uh, in the squad. Does it mean he's going to start every game? I'm not sure. I think maybe, you know, we've demonstrated that there are certain games where the opposition's approach can be dealt with with some of the players that, you know, we have beyond Jesus, you know, like Trossard, like Havertz. Um, But I don't, I'm not into the idea that, that we've moved beyond him or that the system doesn't suit him or that he can't contribute. I don't think that's true. I think he can do more. I think he can deliver more. I think certainly, you know, if you're the starting number nine for a team like Arsenal, you should be scoring more goals. But I just want to see him back and fit. And, you know, I'm not ready to write him off. I just, you know, I I think we're going to need him. We're going to need, you know, as many of these players uh, who've been missing, we're going to need them between now and May. You know, it's not just domestic football now. We've got Champions League coming up. We are going to get stretched. So we need to get some of these injured players back. And and certainly, if you were prioritizing the players who are coming back um, from injury, he'd be very, very close to the top of the list for me. I'm with you. I think it's a bit reactionary. Um, I think that... It's funny enough, I think we were having this debate almost exactly 12 months ago think when Trossard had come in and was playing as the false nine and people saying, you know, how's Jesus going to get his place back? Trossard's doing really well. Um, I, I think it's good that Trossard has kind of reminded everyone, including Arteta. I know he kind of shared centre-forward duties with Havertz a bit in this game, but I think he's kind of reminded everyone that he is an option in that position. Um and there are things that he offers that are really, really positive. And I think I think Jesus really needs to take a leaf out of Trossard's book when it comes to end product and, mm. you know, match some of his goal scoring. Because at the moment, you know, if you're thinking who, who's likeliest to actually get a goal in the game, to be honest, you feel like it's Trossard. Um, but I, Jesus, I don't doubt, will have a part to play. And, you know, during the sort of mid-season break, I picked him somewhat optimistically as the player to have a kind of breakout, you know, big, impressive second half of the season. Now, right now, that looks like a bad pick. But if we are to do something extraordinary and win the league, I'm sure he'll have been part of it. Mm. Um, yeah, because, you know, he can play wide as well. And he, he, he can bring something to the centre-forward position that, you know, Trossard and, and yeah. Havertz, they do it differently. And, and people will say, well, they bring... Or certainly Trossard brings more goals at this moment in time, but 
you know, we're, we're going to need this full squad as much as possible. And he's a very, very good player. His injury record is frustrating. Of course it is. But, you know, uh, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater uh, with this one. Um, where was the one I was going to ask? Oh, yeah. Five Venger Death Punch says, could you give me your percentages on how much of post-warm-weather training dominance you credit to rested players and how much to Arteta for having time to implement some new tactics? Saka, White, and Martinelli all look properly fit for the first time this season. Tactically, the front line is freely rotating, creating danger all over the box. We played Liverpool with Kai and Odegaard as dual tens, and yesterday we inverted more from right back, allowing Kivior to shine defensively without putting him in midfield positions he is less comfortable in. And can I just say, I meant to mention this in the first half, that, you know, Ben White, we talked about him annoying the goalkeeper, but Ben White was overlapping and playing in midfield Mm -hmm. um, throughout yesterday. And I think that aspect of his performance deserves a lot of credit as well, because we we did shift things very slightly in that first half where you would see Ben White as the one who was uh, coming central to to create those triangles and those passing options uh, for Saka and Odegaard. And it's unusual, you know, to see that happen with our right back. And they've obviously decided uh, Kivior is more solid if he doesn't have to take on that extra responsibility. So it was a little tactical shift there as well. Definitely. And I think Kivior benefits from it. And that's quite an interesting theme of our you know, uh, last few games is that there's been significant variation in the way that we've played, the way we've set up, even the shape. Um, And, you know, last season it was very much, we knew what the team was. There were little tweaks week by week, but, you know, pretty much everybody, including the opposition, knew what we were going to try to do uh, if we had everybody available. And I think some of the changes have been in force, but I also think, that Arteta wants that kind of um, Swiss army knife feel to the team where he can make adjustments, he can set up slightly differently. Um, And what's been really positive has been to have consistency of performances through that. Um, What do I credit the resurgence? I mean, I, I think physical freshness is certainly part of it, but I don't think you can underestimate... And again, it's much harder to measure, but the mental freshness as well. I think that it's a slog, you know, that first half of the season, especially when you get into those winter months, you're traveling midweek for European games as well. Um, You've got to remember in this period, you know, until next, what is it, the week after next or, yeah, next week, that's not something we're having to contend with. We're Mm. basically playing one game a week. It's pretty manageable. We're out of two domestic cups. Our fixture list in January and early part of Feb has been pretty lean. Uh, and I think that helps physically and mentally to cope with the kind of load. I think it's going to get much more challenging once the Champions League recommences. And I hope that we'll be up to that challenge. But we need players back. We really, really need a few players back. Sure. And we did talk about how the the break came at sort of the right time for Arsenal, where you could draw a line in the sand and just put that behind you, and then just focus on the second half of the season. And I do think there is something. I do think there is something to that. Um, you mentioned physical freshness, and you're absolutely right. We need to get these players back. You know, we have to have the ability to rotate and to 
manage the minutes that these players are are being asked to play, you know, because it is a very, very thin squad at this moment in time. Um, and all credit to them yesterday for getting that win with the first team that we had out there, enabling some of the substitutions, you know, to come on. So a big win, but when you're playing, you know, Champions League game in midweek, then you've got a high-pressure game at the weekend and then another Champions League game. You'll you'll get found out if you don't have the the numbers. So um, hopefully, hopefully we can get those guys back. Quick question here yeah. on on those substitutions. Actually, it's from Andrew the Hinkley Gooner, uh, and Andrew says, uh, "Goodly morning, time six, gents. We all saw how amazing it was yesterday. So, after a different question, it was great seeing Ranieri come on, but why the fuck did Cedric come on ahead of Waters?" He's the future. Cedric clearly isn't. That was a strange one for me. Um, there's two things that I, that spring to mind. One is that he put Nwaneri on the on the right, yeah, and wanted him to have some experience around him and behind him, maybe. Mm-hmm. So whatever That's else, fair, think, yeah. yeah, whatever else. You would say about Cedric, he certainly got experience. Maybe that was the um, the reason for it. Maybe the other reason is that Ru Walters isn't as ready as Ethan Wanneri to get minutes. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen enough of him, so I don't. I don't really know. I just wonder if it was, you know, part of it was just Arteta's slight conservatism when it comes to things like this, where. I'll put a 16-year-old on, but I won't put a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old on. You know, mm. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, you know, we've got to consider Walters' contract situation. He's out of contract at the end of the season. So I, I, I don't know if it's correct to say he's the future. You know, I think there's every chance he's not at the club in a few months' time. Yeah, they might have made that decision already, you know, and he's just sort of there kind of, it might sound harsh, but to sort of make up the numbers or if we absolutely have to have uh, another defender on the bench, he is that option. I'm not, you know, that could be it. Yeah, I mean, we've been quite stretched at fullback at times this season and he's not had a look in, um, which I think probably tells you about where he is in Mikel Arteta's thoughts. I, I, I feel uh, I feel for him a little bit because I think mm. there have been moments where other managers might have given him a chance. And, you know, I, I think the contract thing, it's a two-way street, right? I, I, I'm i not sure how keen he would be to sign a new contract under the current circumstances because he doesn't get any playing time and sure. it may not be what's best for his career and his development. Um, I would rather personally have seen him get an opportunity than Cedric, but I think you make a great point about the inexperience potentially on that flank mm. simultaneously. And I think as well, Arteta probably has to consider for squad harmony, like who's the more influential personality in the squad? Who do I have to charm more to keep everybody happy? And I think he would have made the decision that in the short term, at least, it's probably Cedric. Why? I mean, um, I, why does he have to keep him happy? Like, you know, that's a genuine... And I'm with you. Like, I would have preferred to see Walters, and I tried to explain, I think, why 
I think we didn't. But I don't know that at this point, with Cedric, you know, in the final few months of, you know, his contract mm-hmm. at Arsenal, everyone knows he's going to go in the summer. It's not a question of, of keeping him happy, but maybe, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I See, personally, I think it's one of the hardest things to do as a manager, but how do you keep the people on the very fringes engaged to kind of foster that sense of, togetherness and harmony and you know we're all doing this for each other we're all prepped if we're suddenly needed Mm. I I think that is part of it and I think you've got to throw people a bone sometimes I I actually think Arteta I think he could do more of that you know like I think there are minutes he could chuck to players on the fringes maybe a little bit more often but it's not really his style but I do wonder if that's I mean, and also the other thing to say is we may just be massively overanalyzing this and it was as simple as protecting Ben White and he, he views Cedric as higher up the pecking order and that's that. Yeah, I mean, that probably is it, you know, as as, yeah. as if it came down to it, if there was a, you know, a big game and we had to take Ben White off and the options were Cedric or Walters, who's going on and sure. it is probably do you want the guy who's never played for the club or do you want the guy who's won the Euros yeah I, I you know yeah for what it's worth I guess you're going Cedric aren't you so yeah. well Arteta is you know uh, yeah <laughs> yeah 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 and it's interesting because there was a time where I think Arteta was quite ex- from what I heard anyway was quite excited about Walters's talent like when he was like we're talking a couple of years ago like when Mikel was quite early in the club, he was someone he brought up and had trained with the first team quite a lot at quite a young age. Um, I seem to remember he was on the bench, like in those early days, and people were like, who is this guy? Um, and there was genuinely quite a lot of excitement within the club about him. Um, but it's not quite mm. come to fruition. And I, if I had to say now, I don't think it will. I think he'll probably go in the summer and tries luck elsewhere and and who knows but yeah it's 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 just a sort of interesting isn't it how there can be a lot of excitement sure. at one point in players development and then things change quite quickly two words miguel aziz yes there you go exactly. it's just a demonstration of you know how somebody can be, yeah it can be really really highly rated but that you know maybe that last step between youth football and stepping up to the first team is too challenging for whatever reason. Let's just finish with this one from Wise Marklar. He says, this isn't a joke. Okay. So bear that in mind. Don't laugh, guys. Does Olaying put players at risk? Calvin Phillips in particular looked like he wanted to snap someone in half as we made him chase his own shadow. Hmm. I think that's an interesting question. So do I. That's why I asked it. Yeah. This Mark Lahr is indeed wise. I, I think um, it does a little bit. It does. I'm trying to think where Alay's start. I'm trying to think, is it something that comes from the fans or is it something that comes from the players? Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of what's actually happening on the pitch. I think it's it's quite symbiotic. Because what Arsenal did at 4-0 up yesterday, maybe it was 4-0, I have to look up, uh, because I didn't mention it in the the live blog. So let me just look back at the live blog just before halftime. 50 minutes in, yeah. Ole's already from the Arsenal fans. But I think the Ole's were a response to the way Arsenal were playing. 
as much as the fans having a great time and enjoying themselves. And I don't want to take anything away from, you know, the, the people who go to the games and travel to games. They're perfectly entitled uh, to have as much fun as possible. And if you're 4-0 up away from home, why the fuck not, right? Even if it's personally something I, I it just puts me on edge. Right. Just, that's me. I'm not saying it's right or wrong or anything. That's just the way I feel about it, particularly in the first half. But I do think Arsenal just didn't let West Ham near the ball. They just passed it around, passed it around. And I think that leads to the Olays in a way. And then the Olays lead to maybe being a bit more secure in possession. Go back, recirculate yeah, I, I think it. of Olays I mean? as quite passive. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think of them as being uh, sort of when you're playing without particular purpose. I think it's more about winding up the opposition. Right. That's the way I interpret them anyway. You know, I could be wrong, but it feels like, look at us. You can't get it. Look at you. You're shit. Look, yeah. we've got the ball. You still can't get it. Nee, 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 nee. There's an element of that to the Olays for me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I, th- I Yeah, I, I also sort of have a feeling about them as kind of sort of the Mexican wave of football charts. It's like, this is no longer a contest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. What amusement can we make for ourselves? But I, I definitely think they're going to rile people up, aren't they? Yeah, there was a few moments in the late in the second half where you could see West Ham players, a couple of West Ham players were a bit fed up and there were, there were a couple of tackles went in and Mike Kudus might have been one of them where he had a couple of couple of nibbles. And I, I think I did remark on it in the live blog that there were a couple where the West Ham player came crashing in, sliding in, and the Arsenal players, being the wonderfully quick and nimble athletes that they are, were able to step out of the way, but had those tackles been like half a second uh, better timed or worse timed? I don't know which. You know, they might have been quite serious. Martinelli took a couple of kicks, didn't he? And Yeah, I remember that. You know, so there is an element of that, but... To be honest, I think if you're beating a team five or six nil, I think whether anyone's saying a lay or not, there's a chance of someone taking out some frustration on you. Yes, yeah. I think that's just the reality of football isn't it yeah um i suspect the chance are kind of you know a bit of a red herring really i think it's actually the scoreline and and the humiliation of that that's that provides the greatest motivation it's, it's all yeah it's all part of all part of the mix i think you know it's the cocktail of of frustration that you you create when you're winning a game like that when you play the way you play that elicits the olays or vice yeah. versa and then all of those things um you know just become part of it but fuck it we came out of it all right. We won 6-0 and everybody's happy today. So that's the main thing. Great stuff. All right. That. We had better leave it there. As ever, thank you very much indeed, as always, for being with us. We really appreciate you listening, downloading, subscribing, sharing, and all the rest. Do join us a bit later on over on Patreon for an episode of The 30, looking back at all the weekend's Premier League action. That's patreon.com forward slash arsblog for now. Take it easy and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.